0: And welcome back to the sweet spot where CIOs talk about CIOs and where we talk about interesting things, hoping that of course, that you think they're interesting too. Uh, welcome back with me, Howard Holton. There you are Howard Holton.
1: Hey Paul, how's it going? I'm I'm once again, coming to you from a London train station.
0: (laughs) Uh, Beautiful, beautiful. And I'm still in Nepal, as you can see. Uh, And we are joined today by yet another, Technology executive
2: Inderjit Rana, how are you doing today? Paul, I'm doing great. Uh, nice to meet you, Howard. And uh, I'm here in New Jersey, Warren, like you know, not like a interesting place where you guys are at. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's right. <laughs> I mean, New Jersey is fairly interesting. You have all the all those buried bodies. You know, I mean, the mob was there for decades, so I'm sure there's you know plenty what? of interesting if you to go dig in the backyard.
2: I heard about that. And, you know, people often ask me that, you know, why the hell you live in New Jersey? And sometime, you know, I scratch my head and uh, try to think about that. You know, why do I do that? And I haven't run into anybody yet who can tell me that, okay, well, these are the five interesting places. That's why you have to live in New Jersey. You know, so I'm still investigating and it's been uh, 20 years already, but next year will be a Will be a breakthrough, definitely. I will let you know. <laughs> and there's Fantastic. a new
0: terminal at your airport that I haven't experienced yet. Have you experienced a new terminal? Not yet. No, not yet.
1: No, just the construction, right? I just, <laughs> just experienced the construction. construction, and that was that I didn't like that. <laughs> no, that, that was a turnoff for, for New Jersey. I have to be honest,
2: right? And it's only on the United side, like in you know, the rest of the airlines are still suffering. So, give us a little bit of back, give us a 101. Right, so um, as a quick way of introduction is, uh, uh, my name is inderjeet Rana.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I'm a CTO at uh, Hitachi Ventera covering uh, financial services globally. So I want to bring some light on the issues and the modern approach to manage and protect data. But before I do that, a little bit uh, about myself that, uh, I've been with Hitachi for about five months, relatively new. But uh, prior to this, you know, I worked in the banking and financial industry for about twenty-five years, running infrastructure and technologies. Uh, even today, uh, I call myself as a customer rather than uh, a provider. So I sit on the other side of the uh, you know desk right now, thinking as thinking and talking as a provider. But which gives me an interesting viewpoint when I'm talking to our team internally and uh, you know our customers outside. So. Before I joined Hitachi, like, you know, I have basically four main chapters in my career. And, uh, it, uh, and Hitachi played a, a sort of an important role in uh, each and every one of them because I've been using their technology for a long time. So, you started out with Bell Labs.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: That's where the bits and bytes and all those things happened. Then uh, from there, I moved to Merrill Lynch. From Merrill Lynch, I moved to uh, Barclays Capital. And from Barclays Capital, I moved to New York Stock Exchange. So now, interestingly, every single of these companies disappeared through M&A. Either they bought by somebody or somebody mm-hmm. bought them. So this is a, one of the attribute of myself, like you know, wherever I go, sort of it changes the dimension. So time will tell what happens to Hitachi, but uh, I think Hitachi will be in the position to buy more company than being bought out. Now, uh, talking a little bit about the uh, New York Stock Exchange is uh, this is where speed and stability matters. You know, you guys going through COVID-19 pandemic and things like that, market swings, uh, you know, 3,500 points up and down uh, during a given day, something like that never happened. Now, when you see something like that, you know, then you have to think about that, am I I stable? Is my infrastructure is operating normally? Am I able to sustain all these shocks which market throwing at us? And uh, this is where the gravity of uh, infrastructure comes in. Now, if you, if you experience an outage in an exchange like that for about five minutes, it becomes a international news. Mm-hmm. So that's an attribute right, right there. I think about pressure, that's the kind of environment like an you know, exchange operates in. So uh, what else I can tell you about myself? Like, you know, what is my current job? So from my job profile at Hitachi perspective, I work with the technology product solutions and customers to ensure that we are continuously innovating and providing the technology to our customer to be more effective, to be more agile and scalable across uh, all the attributes of a core cloud and edge. So this is in short summary, that's what I do. Interesting, so so I've got two questions before we jump into a
0: technology conversation. So question number one, Uh, Howard and I have made the transition. We've made the leap between operating IT to providing IT. Uh, um, and we have some interesting stories on what that meant to make a turn. I'm, I'm interested in your perspective. Now that you're a few months in, you've made the leap to the provider side. What's, uh, what's the distinct difference between the two?
2: <laughs> uh, the fundamental difference is uh, from a provider side, what I've seen is uh, providers are hyper-focused on customers. Mm. Means customer sits in the center of every single conversation. And uh, there is a large body of machinery works alongside to come up to the final conclusion, what to be said to the customer, how to be presented to the customer, and what all product and solutions like we're we gonna be pitching in. Because end of the day, provider need to make money. And uh, they have a limited shot, they have a limited number of hours to present all these framework in front of customer. So what I learned from here is, which I did not have a good understanding about, uh, coming from the uh, customer side is, uh, it's all about preparation. It's all about uh, making sure that every attribute, every pulse of the customer is thought through before we say anything, before we pitch anything. Now, if I knew that before, I would have milked my vendors a little more.
0: <laughs>
2: but, uh, <laughs> so, so one of the
1: things that i found uh, is all of that to be true, however, um, there's very few people in the provider side that actually were a customer and really do understand the perspective of the customer in any meaningful way. So we spend a lot of time in these meetings, the preparatory meetings going, no, 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 we don't, customers don't actually think that way. No, 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 customers don't, like, it doesn't even operate that way. Let's kind of let's walk through a little one-on-one on how customers tend to operate, how CIOs tend to think, how EAs tend to think. Before we have these conversations, and and I find when we do that, and the the account team is receptive, it's it's so much more effective.
2: Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. Like you know, you you are you are hitting right on the right on the head over here that particular nail. So um, now, if you think about a customer, you have to. It's not about a persona, a personality. You have to think about like you know what kind of business they are in. Say, for example, you are in a banking and finance division, you have to you have to look at that, what actually that that firm is doing, how they make money, what all products they have. Are they into asset management business or are they into a retail banking business? Mm-hmm. Now, let's take an example of asset management business. Now, in the asset management business, what happens is you have to understand that, you know, what is their MBO, what are their mandates. They have to make sure that their clientele is growing. They have to make sure that they are able to make money through their product and services they offer. Means what I'm saying is, we have to have that view. We as a provider, we have to put ourselves into their shoes to understand their business actually. That what is it they do, how they make money, how they sustain these large workforces. And it's not about the technology, it's not about what we sell to them, it's about how we gonna enable them so that they can make more money they can be more secure, they can be more agile, they can be more scalable, whatever it is. Now, we don't see that way. Sometime as a provider, we have our blinders on. What we do is, okay, we are talking to the infrastructure folks or we are talking to the data management team. We have to give them like, you know, what they're asking. Either it could be refresh, it could be, you know, some new shiny product or things like that. We have to take that three notches up. We have to zoom out a little bit and say that, how I can think so that that customer can make more money, how I can make them more smarter so that they can think about that as a partner, not as a transaction. So, And, and even
0: if it's just understanding, like uh, Howard and I, one of the first things we did when we start here was create the enterprise architecture practice. In fact, that was a good portion of Howard's mind share for the first year, at least. Um, and one of the 101s we had to do was uplift the conversation into, we'll call it a business model canvas conversation, right? So less about product out and more about customers' uh, business holistically. So things like who their customers are, what customer segments they have, what assets they have, how they make money, how they spend money, what their supply chain looks like, but even for, for and foremost, all of that is what their value proposition to the market is, right? How they're perceived by their customers and their competitors, and once you, once you document that, the conversation with a client is dramatically different, right? It's now about saying, now that we appreciate all the levers of your business, what are the important ones, right? And, and how are you tackling any of those levers? No,
2: absolutely. Because think of that, Paul, like, you know, you, you, you said it right. You know, it's about uh, once we understand that, you know, what the business is all about, like, you know, what all levers to pull. Uh, end of the day, on the customer side, these are the human beings. These are Mm -hmm. the people like, you know, sitting over there and their job is at least the leadership side of it to make decisions. Now, what we have to do is we have to structure our conversation in a way so that we can enable them to make quick decisions and we can enable them to make faster decisions. Now, there are good ways to do it and there are bad ways to do it. If we're going to throw a whole bunch of content at them, if we're going to throw a whole bunch of uh, just a chaotic... uh, you know, anecdotes or a market comparison and this and that, all that material, they won't be able to decipher any of that. It throws them in a lockdown mode because their business priority is something completely different. Mm-hmm. Now they have to basically swift through all that crap we are giving them. Now how they can find the right balance and get to a decision so that they can say yes, no, or maybe to whatever the product, whatever the technology, whatever the context is to get to the next level. Well,
1: cool, And the, and, and the, there's no question that the customer is going to take anything they buy and use it to increase their profit, increase their value, right? Whether that's reduced cost and increase or, or increase increase profit, either way, right? Um, and so you know, Paul and I talk about these kind of three buckets that that we can fit in with each customer. We can be a provider. In which case, all we do is throw technical details at technical people and allow them to figure out how do they turn that into a business value. Okay, we can do that. And, and most, most of our competitors and us, most of the time, that's the bucket we fit in. We talk a lot about being a trusted advisor, but we're really in the provider bucket, right? The lowest common denominator, an RFP is issued or you know, a request for some product is issued. We say our product is the best, here's the price, and they buy it. That's, that's really it. The, there's very, very little, in, I would call it enhanced value there, right? The product itself has value, but outside of the product, there's no value. The next level that we can move to is the kind of partner level or vendor level, depending on the way you wanna put that, right? Um, And that's where we really need to understand how the customer makes money, how the customer spends money, be probably more important, right? Because if we're not aligned to how they're planning on spending money, it doesn't matter what we do, we're not gonna sell anything. Um, How they plan to make money, Not just how they make it today, but every single market has changed, right? Financial services is a really, really good example. We're seeing a whole lot of innovation in the financial services market that affects the the total gamut, right? Where you make investments, how you handle retail banking, what retail banking will look like in the future, what the relationship that people will have with their bank is. It's no longer I have my mortgage, my checking, my savings, my investment, my retirement, my credit cards all through one bank. That's six different things, and it's probably more like 12 things. I probably have that with seven banks, right? I have a, I have my my credit union from a former employer that I qualified for. I have a local credit union where I have a relationship. I have some bank that I've been, been with forever. I have some bank that gave me a better rate on a thing, right? I mean, and so, so how does that, how does the market not only look today, but where do they see the market going, and where do we see the market going based on the fact that we talked to at least a hundred of their, a uh, hundred different companies that sit in, in kind of a similar market, right? Um, what is that value we can bring to a customer, and how do we help them align their technology strategy to their business strategy, or at least align with what they've already done, right? right. And, and when we fail to do that, we're just another provider. When we succeed at doing that, we're now we're now moving into that vendor partner quadrant. On our way hopefully to eventually push into the trusted advisor position which which i hate to say we're probably almost never if ever actually in that position
2: right so so Howard, you know you're 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 absolutely right you know that's a that's the key word you know trusted advisor and uh, it's extremely important to uh, differentiate that, you know, when you talk to a vendor, you know, or a provider, in the other words, is, uh, are you talking about a transaction? Or are you talking about a true partnership? And then decipher the meaning of true partnership a little bit more, Uh, feeling their pain, understanding like, you know, where, where they want to go, how they want to transform some things like that. And then bring that trusted advisorship, and giving them all the options with in a very subtle way, that builds up a credibility. And most importantly, and this is what me as a customer, like, you know, I always look for that when I'm selecting that which provider I'm gonna go with is, who got my back? You know, again, think of that. On the other side of the table, these are human beings. And human beings have, even though the most analytical people who are hinges on every single decision they make through their data, you know, I've ran into, prob- uh, in, into uh, the personality who are completely robots, means they're going to be making decision based on completely analytical thinking. Unless it is done, there won't be any decision. But end of the day, all these guys are human beings. What they want to hear is, do they guard my back in case of something goes wrong? Either it's a new technology or something so big, which I'm taking my chances on. It looks very good on the paper. It checks out everything in the testing. Now it's rolled out in production, initial messaging is working fine, but now I'm scaling that up. I'm going in petabytes and petabyte of capacity. Now, if I run into a problem like that, I'm halfway through, I can't pull out, I can't push forward, I can't go sideways. What the hell am i gonna do? Who got my back? And are these guys credible enough? Are these guys big enough? Do they have a deeper bench and understanding of what I do so that they can bring the product and solutions and the fixes which I'm looking for to scale my environment or whatever, the, whatever I'm doing uh, to the level I want. So if the answer is yes, that brings a, a very solid credibility and a very deeper relationship, regardless of that company, if that person, if that leader, even leave that company, go someplace else, they're gonna bring those people with them. So yeah, I mean, it's,
1: it's, it's interesting, right? Um, and when we look to, you, you brought up trusted advisor, One of the things that is the most important in the partner relationship and the trusted advisor relationship is no. No. If you're, in fact, my trusted advisor, then I have to trust you to tell me no when I shouldn't do something. Or, at the very least, if you're a partner, you should tell me no when your product doesn't work for me. Like it's a partnership. So there has to be this, it's, it's not about compromise. It's literally about give and take, right? If if the only thing the customer gets from me is the things I give them in the products that I give them and the way I tell them to use them, I'm still a provider, right? If they don't get anything from me, if I'm not giving anything up, they're not actually, I'm not actually a partner. And, and sometimes that means I have a product that technically fits your requirements, but frankly, this other thing is better, right? <laughs> There's a better way to do that. There's, you know, a technically I could maybe do that, but the reality is you need this thing that's purpose-built to do exactly what you want. And if I'm a good enough partner, right, and, and it's a good enough customer, they're going to they're, they're gonna hear that. They're going to go, I really appreciate it. And then they're going to come right back to the to the to the batter's box and go, "Okay, cool. So we got that thing. It's working great. That was excellent advice. Now we need this thing. Can you help me with this thing?" And that's actually how you become that trusted advisor. A trusted advisor says no as often as they say yes. Yep. No, you shouldn't do that comes up or no, you shouldn't do that with me should come up as often as yes, I can do that. Right, right?
0: Yeah, as Thank long you. as it also includes but I know others who do.
1: Correct. And, That's why and they, they may be
0: competitors, they may not be, but at least I have an appreciation for the ecosystems of solutions, right? Yes. I can help you with that partnership. So let's, let's shift onto another side, talk about sort of thought leadership because Inderjit has some interesting thought leadership. Uh, as, as a side note, I thought I'd mention uh, that I did publish Um, a series of financial services blogs, the last one being yesterday, uh, called Don't Reinvent the Wheel, Ride the Wave. It actually talks about a variety of those financial services specific innovations that are happening. And they're all business innovations versus technology innovations. Things uh, either retail banking or investment banking or wealth banking or small business lending uh, can actually do to increase wallet share, find customer segments they haven't found before, or just in general, get into a geographic market they haven't yet even broached before. So I I highly recommend you click on that. We'll put this link in the notes, but let's talk about Inderjit, what your uh, unpublished article reads because it's incredibly interesting. And if I were (laughs) to sort of summarize your perspective on this sort of technology double click, it would be about uh, eliminating backup or at least traditional backup holistically. Uh, because there are limitations to what you can do to the traditional backup, the data that you collect, um, and you could actually use the information you're collecting for real value. You have some thoughts on that. Do you, do you have a summary on that perspective? Yes, Paul, I can uh, I can
2: provide you a, a, a summary. A perspective. Give us a short summary and then uh, Howard will have a take. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or, or a day-long conversation if you, if you fancy that. But. Right. Uh, Give us well, the, uh, give us the 122nd version. Right. So, so here is the thing, Paul, um, you walk into any of these big banks, you walk into any of the established, uh, corporation, uh, pick, uh, take your pick from S and P 500, any of those companies. Mm-hmm. And uh, a large majority of the expense is going into the backup area. And let me expand on that one is because, you know, I took some time to decipher that because I myself as a customer been through four of these companies and, um, uh, you know, on a, on a surface note, it's extremely important to protect the data and it's extremely important to enable the data. Now it's even more important than the production part of it. And despite of all that, we are not able to enable the data. We are continuously taking the backups and those backups are daily, weekly, monthly, over and over again. This is one of the largest footprint sitting in the, any corporation. And this is one of the darkest of dark data which is sitting in any corporation. And most importantly, this is one of the most expensive per terabyte footprint sitting in any of those corporations. So this, in summary, the thought process over here is we have to change our thinking process as a corporation while we are transforming. What that mean, what that mean is uh, we have to have a first design level thinking. In that thinking, we have to look at entire thing as a operational recovery and as a archive. And get rid of all the backups in the middle completely out of the out of the window. But do in a do in a kind of a step fashion over the period of time. What I mean by that is uh, if you rewind the clock, go back 15 years ago, we did not have any credible archive platform. That's why people use backup for backing up the content as well as archiving the content, and they kept it for a long time. They sent it to Iron Mountain, and probably they kept it some of that for indefinitely right? So that infrastructure was established, it was in place, those people were in place, those teams were set up, and it kind of progressed over the period of time. And today, till date, all that is working as it is. There is no change in that environment. So what we are suggesting is, we have to look at every single company if they fail on something, if, they, if somebody fat-fingered dropped their database, or something is broken. They have to recover that. That should fall under operational recovery. Now, operational recovery is your DR copy, your N plus one instances, your some cloning which is sitting on prem or in the cloud or some sort of a snapshot. That's where you go to recover all the fat finger, all the instant crash or something wrong, right? You know, that's the BCM strategy, mm-hmm. that's your DR strategy, that's your N plus one strategy. Now, if you want to store anything for more than one day and now this is provocative like you know there will be a lot of contradiction over here but if somebody if if not one day you want to change it to one week if you want to store from one day to one week to one year to seven years that should go through a archive type of a framework and you should archive that instead of backing up once you do that you took out enormous amount of cost from the infrastructure. You got rid of all your data domains. You got rid of all your tape library. You got rid of all your Iron Mountain expenses and things like that. And now you have a clean archive in place where you can run all your futuristic thing which you want to do, machine learning, artificial intelligence, computer vision, you name it. So that's the enablement. It's not like bringing in other product which can do a backup in a more creative way. Backup should not exist. Point in time images should get out of the way. That's, that's the message over here is, unless we do that, like, you know, we won't be successful in any of these organizations. And that is also a first design principle thinking coming out of Google Cloud and Amazon and some of these cloud providers.
0: So- uh, Fascinating. Howard, is that yeah. possible? Can, can so, one eliminate backups?
1: Um, uh, I mean, the answer is yes and no, right? Um, I would say, like, we need to look at what the job of IT is. And it's interesting to talk about backup because when, when Paul, when you and I do our kind of um, evolution of IT discussion, it's all about lifecycle management. Right. And the lifecycle management started in infrastructure, right, where we, we really thought about IT as lifecycle management of hardware.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. What's going on with SQL? Well, we're upgrading the server this quarter when we upgrade the server, we replace the hardware, we redo the image, we reinstall the SQL server, we restore from backup, blah, 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 right? That's the point that we do the upgrades. That's the point that we really think and focus on the SQL server. With VMware and virtualization, and especially cloud, that has changed to application management.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And the challenge there is we really needed to move beyond that about four years ago into data management,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: right? Because the fact is, um, app you know, hardware gets more expensive to keep over time, applications get have a longer lifespan but get more expensive to keep over time. But data actually becomes more valuable over time. It's the only asset that right. becomes more valuable over time. We figure out new ways to get value from data that we didn't know had value because of the value we got from data before we looked at that data. Right. Right. And so so what Energy's saying poses. It kind of focuses on two problems just contained within that statement. The first is backup is the only remnant from infrastructure management, from hardware lifecycle management. Right. We continue to do backup the same way we did when we cared about the hardware as though we still care about the hardware.
0: Right. Cause the concern right. was a crash disk at that point. Right. We're, we're treating everything some, like a crash disk.
1: Right. We're concerned with some hardware failure that's going to involve a <laughs> restore Right. Rather than a design from the application standpoint where the hardware doesn't matter. So I don't care if the hardware fails. I have other things in place to mitigate that risk. Right. And it fully ignores the fact that we should be in phase three, which is data management, because all of the stuff we put in backup is dark. Right. It's either completely removed from the system, put in a little turtle put on a truck and taken to, to Iron Mountain or some other Iron Mountain-like location where it could right. not possibly be darker. I don't think they even have the lights turned on. <laughs> right? Or it's encapsulated in some other format that puts it inside, effectively, another kind of shell mm-hmm. that we still can't get access to. And you know what I've never heard in, in my 35 years, I think, that I've been doing? No, 30, I think I did the math. It's like 32 years that I've been doing this. I've never heard a customer say my backup window is shorter than it was five years ago. (laughs) Right. Right. We have customers where when we talk to them about, about backup, one of their biggest concerns is we're about to hit 24 hours. Our backup window takes 24 hours. Okay, cool. So let's look at it a different way and go, there are a few things that are fundamentally true. Backup is supposed to be risk mitigation. So let's stop thinking about it as backup and let's look at the risk mitigation component. How do I mitigate the risk of a data loss event to my corporation? That's a design consideration. And then two, I'm really supposed to be in the data management business more than anything else and really striving to get value from my data. So if I'm already creating a way to mitigate risk by making, let's say, another copy of the data of the application of the system, then I'm also enabling myself to use that that secondary copy, that hot spare as it were, as a read location for my data analytics, therefore moving that traffic off of my primary application and maybe extending the performance lifespan of that primary application system. And I That's do all of that by eliminating backup.
0: It's especially interesting now that there's a rebalance of application performance versus availability. Right? 100%. Where, where I had nine to five users, now I have 6 a.m. to binnet users, and I might have 724 users, and therefore, backup window becomes an incredibly relevant issue there, right? Where I now don't have a window, it doesn't exist. Therefore, I have I have to implement different
1: technology to support the availability required for the users. I mean, backup is the only unit tasker we still have running. <laughs> right. Everything else- it's The like only thing like, we schedule still. <laughs> But backup not only is a unitasker, but while it's running, everything else suffers. Right. So we really, 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 as organizations need to focus on how do I get rid of any unitasker in my environment? Any, period. And let's start with backup. And I don't mean, right, kind of to your point, Energy, I don't mean flip a, turn a light switch and just turn off backup. I mean, focus on what Try to identify where's your low hanging fruit? What are things that are coming up with refresh and how can I do it differently when I refresh those? How can my life cycle management now include not only am I no longer going to allow the creation of sacred cows, those things that we don't touch and we pray to and we hope they don't crash because they're, they're so fragile, but how do I also, anything new that gets rolled out, I use an alternative to traditional backup. I use so some combination of snapshotting and, and long-term archiving and replication and hot spare to ensure that I've done the same percentage of risk mitigation, the same long-term archiving, the same regulatory compliance that I did with backup, only now I'm doing it intelligently.
0: That's actually a good point. Inderjit, uh, aside from the technology, the tools we need to worry about, what are the, what's the business change that has to be put in place first? Like, do we actually have real regulatory, contractual, legislative limitations? Do we have political complexities within the organization? Do we just have, uh, I've been doing it for 150 years because I have a 150-year-old bank and it is what it is. Like, do those have to be resolved either at the same time or before we even talk about the technology side? So, Paul, like, you
2: know, you you listed out quite a few of these, right? Yes. So my answer is all of above, And let me expand <laughs> on that. <laughs> uh, effectively uh, uh, GDPR, it's a, it's a common phrase, uh, people in financial industries like, you know, using twice in the same sentences these days, right? So um, as a matter of fact, GDPR is not only the regulators coming back and asking for information that, uh, that are you guys doing it right? Basically it enables you as a customer of a bank, you can go and demand that, are you able, hey, bank XYZ, are you able to produce the information like you know where my information is used, where my social security, where my name, where my address is used. So now customers are getting smart because more and more information is coming out of the cloud providers and everywhere. Now they are getting uh, on the bandwagon and they're going back and asking these GDPR type of questions directly instead of a GDPR regulator coming back to the bank and asking those things. So effectively, bank need to know that, you know how much I'm storing, what I'm storing, and how I'm gonna pull together all that information to produce reports, so that I can satisfy these customer, I can satisfy these regulators. So if they have no clear understanding of that, how their data is stored, because the data happens to, part of the data happens to be sitting in the backups, which they're not supposed to keep any of that information, but they have no means to pull that information out and know that, you know, this is what I have stored in the backup. They have absolutely no clue about that because which department you go and ask that question, right? There are multiple departments, compliance and governance team in any of the bank and financial companies. There are five people, maybe 10 in a big ones. Those 10 people have no clue, like, you know, what is stored and where is stored and how is stored. Right. So that's what- that's So what's, what's, what's interesting
1: about GDPR, you know what's missing from GDPR? I mean, there's a whole bunch of things, but there's one big glaring omission that is not accidental from GDPR. There's no grandfather clause. You don't get to say this stuff was in a backup. You don't get to say this stuff was on paper. There's no no excuse for it. And that doesn't mean you can't use a backup. That doesn't mean you can't back it up. And that doesn't mean that in the event that someone executes their right to be forgotten, you have to do restorations of your last 70 years of backup. What it means is you have to have a methodology that if backup is ever used, you re-execute all of the workflows to ensure that none of the PII that was supposed to be removed has been restored. And that is so complex. And I'm honestly aware of zero companies doing it. That doesn't mean there aren't any. I'm just not aware of them.
2: But, but so the, Howard, that's the very point. You know, that is coming down the point, like, you know, every bank, every single company have to produce that information. Now, you cannot basically simply achieve that from a from a backup. Like, you know, you have to have a a very rigor catalog based archive solution so that we can catalog how the the, how the information is coming into the company and how it's being staged into multiple locations which means every single organization have to formulate a life cycle of IO means there is an IO coming in the in a bank or a retail company or insurance company or whatever it is how that IO is basically translating from one point to other point from production to dr to the trading to post trade and like you know then to compliance and governance and then going back to the backup or archive whatever it is and you can end up seeing that you know there are 30 40 copies of the same content sitting everywhere there is no reason for that to happen there is no reason for something like that to continue all that thing need to be thought about all that thing need to be rationalized and why people are not able to do it because backup sits in the middle people think that okay I have a operational recovery and a, I have an archive mechanism into the same bolt and I should be able to run it like that until this is sorted out. Like you know, there won't be any agility, there won't be any data reuse, which is the most popular thing these days. And uh, essentially, like you know, that's a cost constraint. You know, means you cannot take the cost out of the environment until you have done something like that. So, okay. what are the steps? Give me, give me the what's the three, four, five steps
0: from today till
2: till a, a backup list society. So, so there are, there are few attributes, right? You know, yeah. so there are nine different attributes, uh, we must have into a new infrastructure. And uh, those attributes are, it should be able to do analytics, which is artificial intelligence, machine learning, computer vision, and so on and so forth. It should be able to enable for data democratization means you should be able to open up access to whoever want to re- repurpose or reuse that data. It should be able to satisfy compliance and governance framework of all different kind, not only GDPR, not only Basel III, CCPA and 50 other things. Uh, You should be able to run your cyber testing on it if you need it. You should be able to use that for disaster recovery Should should you want to use it that way. Now, in terms of any regulatory reporting, FINRA reporting, this and that and whatnot, you should be able to pull out all the reports out of it. Now, it will enable data science type of a scenario within your own company because now everything is properly tagged, everything is properly archived. You can run deep query, you can run deep, deep searches to pull the information you're looking for. Now, most importantly, it should improve agility into your organization, which is the glue, which is the grease where the, where the wheels are working and everything. So these are the attributes. Now, how you go and go about in doing it first and foremost is you follow the life cycle of AIO, you look at a application. Now within that application, you have to see that, now I have to secure this application so that I can recover it in case of a failure. That is your DR strategy, that is your N plus two strategies and all those things. Now the application need to retain the data for the archive purposes. So simply it needs to be passed through a catalog where you are able to tag everything means, okay, this particular attribute, this particular column, is for compliance. This is for some sort of a, uh, a monetization. It could be customer information. It could be whatever it is. And the other attribute will be: it could be for IT need, for how long, how big the files are. You know, what are the attributes of the files and all those things. So once we have tagged everything, then it comes back to how we're going to store it, where are we going to store it. Now object storage is uh, one of the main phenomena happening in the market space. So store it on the object store, store it on-prem, store it on cloud. Once you have done that, you're gonna see that this backup is completely redundant. There is no use of making the point in time images. But fact of the matter is, pick one application at a time go through this very framework we just talked about. And this is not utterly complex, but this is, the, this is the transformational level thinking leadership have to think through and they have to challenge their IT infrastructure, they have to challenge their business application team, and they have to say that we have to get the backup out in 365 days. Here is the framework, here is the guardrails, go and make it happen. And trust me, every application team will understand that, okay, I can recover my application and I can archive everything properly. It's cheaper, it's faster, it's secure, it's future-proof. Why the hell I'm doing all that backup crap? They're gonna see through. But until it said in that format and that definition, rather than like you know slapping a, a different plaster and saying that, oh, we got a new backup, which can do 50 other things, it's not gonna work.
1: No, and, and I mean, I, I think the reality is the first step is look to EIM, hands down. Yep. Most of the time, what I see is organizations that struggle with these conversations don't have a clue where their data is. They looked at EIM and they went, oh, crap, this is complex, and they ran away, screaming most of the time. The fact is, look to EIM. I don't mean complete EIM. Right? But certainly start down the path and then start looking at how do I automate my EIM process, my EIM workflows, and one of the steps that you take into consideration is resiliency of the data, resiliency of the application and resiliency of the business function. And if that's not part of your EIM, that becomes the wrapper around the EIM wheel. Right? If EIM is the wheel, then your resiliency and your, your recoverability is the tire around the wheel.
0: And some of this might simply be how I measure people. If you measure that team via protection, they're going to protect. But if you measure that team via enablement, then they enable, right? So you got to think about even sort of that double click. Now, let's wrap up, but I have one interesting question, financial services that, uh, that I think both of you need, need to have an opinion on. So this morning, this very morning, uh, we see news for Manhattan, J.P. Morgan Chase, recommending, suggesting that some of their leaders, especially the, the floor leaders, uh, come into the office and work from
2: downtown. What do you think about that for them? And what do you think about that for you? Right. Howard, so I'll, I'll take the first stab on that one. Is uh, So Paul, I'm a I'm a believer of that. Uh, if you want to be a truly innovative company and especially on the trading floor where uh, very important decisions are made because a variety of information flowing through, uh, less distraction of the outside world, you are just hyper-focused on what you do on the trading floor, which is trade and make decisions about uh, you know big trade. And there are a lot of attributes around those, those things. So I, I would say that uh, up to some extent, uh, I like that idea for uh, for some important core part of the business, which is uh, which need to be insulated from all sort of a distraction, but not everything else. So especially on the trading floor, if they want to keep something like that, which can uh, and they think that they will have a better collaboration, they will have a better information flow because they are making very big decisions, which is moving the markets. So. You know, I, I I I like that idea, but you know, I would counter that with one more plug over here. Is uh, I also had a very interesting conversation with one of the fintech, one of the startup company, and uh, their CEO came back, and uh, he said that he had problem with creativity by doing things virtually. So, and he took literally forty five to one hour just to talk about that. You know, why it's so important, why you have to be in front of a a whiteboard which you cannot wiggle on the screen, why you have to look people in the eye and you know, just uh, give them all the body language, all the modalities you have so that they can, uh, they can interact with you. And uh, you know, there are people firmly believing that uh, creative, creativity is achieved like you know, when you are in the same room, when you are interacting with e- each other. But again, am I 100% bought into that? Maybe 25%. Yes, you can be creative remotely because we have means and tools and technology available. But uh, for certain decisions where you have to insulate yourself from any sort of a distraction, I would suggest that, you know, yes, we can uh, we can bring those into your room. Oh,
1: so, uh, you, you you honestly, you should send our Leading in a Pandemic series to that to that uh, FinTech <laughs> leader because we've <laughs> talked about that exact thing. And I think we have, yep. have an entire podcast on... We Kind of human interactivity in, you know, the difference between virtual and reality, um, <laughs> <the> reality. <laughs> between virtual and reality. Um, a- anyhow, to your to, kind of to your question, I think there's two reasons why in person makes a huge difference in that very specific circumstance, and it has to do with trading. The first is they've invested millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions, billions of dollars into exceptionally low latency networks that really do make a difference in the trades and trading volume that's occurring. So I think that's one reason, right? That's not available in your home, that's only available in the office. But the second is the more important and that is um, ensuring ethics in communication is a critical piece of modern trading regulation. And I can do that in the office because I can secure communications in the office, right? I can have you check your cell phone in, I can ensure that cell phone calls aren't leaving, I can even install a cell phone blocker if necessary, right? You've got your phone, you've got all of the things that, that the company controls that are used for communication during business hours. Of course, I can not control what you do when you get in the car, but I most certainly can, can control what you do while you're enabled to trade in the office. And those two things are really only most efficient and most effective within the confines of the office. So I can kind of see from those two perspectives the point and purpose. Now, I do think outside of extremely specific in-office requirements that for the most part, we really should be pushing more for work from home, right? To your point, Energy, right? Creativity, I I would argue is 100% better in-person when that creativity requires more than one person, right? Two people right. creating together are gonna to do it much better in the room, right? You, you, it's amazing how, how different the human mind is and that multiplies when you get to three or four or five people. Like These podcasts would be much better if the three of us were in the same room. We actually could have a conversation that involves kind of talking over each other. It's the way a normal conversation goes and it wouldn't be as obnoxious because the human brain is so used to hearing that in the room but technology doesn't handle it the way the human brain does. Right. But you don't need that every day. You don't need that all days.
2: hundred percent agree with you, Howard. And, uh, you know, I want to respond to one more statement on the uh, Paul's questions about, uh, especially with the JPMC making that statement is, uh, you know, that's on the, uh, you know, Corky financial side. Uh, <laughs> they are one of the biggest REITs, uh, providers, issuer. Right. And, um, if a JPMC makes a statement that we're going 100% remote, what's going to happen to all those Manhattan buildings? What's going to happen to all the real estate REIT market globally? Uh, you know, I will leave that for uh, your own imagination. Well, but
1: uh, We've, I'm we've done that math in a prior sweet spot. Yep. Effectively, a 10% reduction in office space in the U.S. is a $6 billion loss.
2: Right. And uh, now you... Peel the onion. Who is the biggest issuer of REITs? JPMC. So it's, it's, uh, it's interesting. So
0: as I prefer, I get the final word. <laughs> I, I appreciate both of you here. Uh, excellent conversation. I think my opinion on this is that I like the option, right? I agree with you that uh, there is a balance between creativity and collaboration and some you can do virtually, uh, some in many ways you need to do physically. Um, uh, but I do like having the option of going to an office to have those kind of meetings, especially the ancillary effect right The ancillary effect is that all those businesses that are in downtown Manhattan can start to open up again, right the coffee shops and the dry cleaners and the bakeries you're like all those little guys who also need to open up also need to get that revenue well it 's the business people providing that revenue right and and I think there's some there 's some value there as long as health, safety, standards are all in place. Well, thanks to both of you. This has been another episode of The Sweet Spot. I hope you enjoyed it. We got to double click on understanding Inderjit Rana and his thoughts on uh, his role and uh, smart backup, uh, which is great. Um, And we look forward to his article that he gets disclosed. Um, uh, We absolutely want you to like and subscribe and comment. Every comment we get, we, read and understand, discuss, and uh, largely dismiss. But we appreciate the comments regardless. Uh, and we look forward to doing another one of these uh, next week and download and enjoy. Uh, for me, thank you very much. And Howard,
1: uh, any final word? Uh, no, we actually do read all the comments and consider. Them. <laughs> right. we don't, we don't That's what I meant to say. Myself. I should say we, we read both of the comments.
0: <laughs> we read both of the comments. And we enjoy them every time, thanks to Daryl, who sends them in. Uh, goodbye, everybody, <laughs> and we'll, we'll see you next week. Thanks, Mike.